0: If you haven't had a chance to download it yet, please check out my top three relationship communication secrets. These are the kinds of things that help you connect with your partner, even if you're talking about something really challenging. And it's a little different than some of the conventional wisdom about how to communicate in relationship. So if you're interested in getting this free guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or you can text the word RELATE to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Not only because I'm about to get married, and not only because this is the 100th episode of Relationship Alive, which is pretty cool, but also because we are going to be talking today about a topic that is so important, both in terms of what brings us together and often in terms of what tears us apart. We're going to be talking about the dance of attraction What is it that sustains attraction in a long-term relationship? And furthermore, if the spark is gone for you or for your partner, what do you do to get it back? And in order to cover such an important topic, we have two very special guests who are here to celebrate the 100th episode of Relationship Alive with us. Both of them have written extensively on the topic of how to make relationships work, and both of them have had extensive research done into the kinds of therapy that they have created in order to help couples who either are on the brink of something horrible, or couples who are already doing well do even more amazingly well. So in the latter part of the show, we are going to be talking with Sue Johnson, the creator of Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy, or EFT. And she is perhaps the modern-day godmother of relationships and how to help them stay healthy and thrive. And I'm really excited for you to hear what Sue has to say about attraction. But before we get to Sue, the very first person that we'll be talking to today is none other than John Gottman, who, if Sue Johnson is the godmother of relationship and couples therapy, then perhaps John Gottman is the godfather. So his work has been so influential in helping us come to understand what makes couples tick, and particularly the ones that are doing it well. How do they manage to do so well, especially year after year after year? So we're going to cover a lot of ground today and as usual we will have a detailed show guide for today's episode. You can get that by visiting slash attraction or you can simply text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and i will send you a link so you can download the show guide to this episode and all of the other relationship alive episodes. So it's, I'm really excited for you today, and thank you so much for being here with me. And if you don't mind taking a moment, if, this, if you find this show to be really inspiring for you, then maybe you could also just take a moment to share it with, with your friends. Just let them know, hey, I, I'm listening to this podcast. It's their 100th episode. It's with John Gottman and Sue Johnson, and it's amazing, or something along those lines. Uh, I would really appreciate your help in getting the word out to even more people. So the conversation begins with John Gottman, and we were actually hanging out and talking about, um, on the phone, we, we weren't hanging out in person, although I'm sure that would be cool. Um, we were hanging out and talking about this article that, you know, I, I'm telling him what, what I want the 100th episode to be about and what we're going to talk about, and he's like, hang on a second. And then he pulls out this article that's all about responsiveness and responsiveness being at the heart of attraction. And so, you know, like the intrepid interviewer that I am, I just ask the question that seems obvious to me, which is, so do you mean that if I'm, um, if my partner isn't feeling attracted to me, that I'm not being responsive enough in some way to them? And his answer to this question might surprise you.
1: No, if you're not feeling sexual desire, The problem is that you're not responsive to your partner. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's the problem is that you're tuned out, you're disengaged. You don't respond. And I'll tell you, Neil, uh, I've just, I came back from, uh, a group of safaris that my wife and I took in Africa in January. And we, I happened to be about three foot away, three feet away from a pair of courting lions, a lion and lioness. And I have never seen a male more responsive to a female in my life. I mean, when that lioness moved, this lion went, what? What? What is it? What do you need? What do you need? Huh? Where are you going? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> she lay down and she was languishing. He lay down and he was resting also, but one ear was perked up to what she wanted. She got up, he got up, (laughs) right away. It was incredible how responsive he was. At one point she became afraid of the tracker. Um, This particular Jeep we were in had a tracker sitting in the front and a seat attached to the front left fender and uh, animals don't see it as part of the Jeep. So she noticed that and got really wary and he was ready to kill this guy. And, and our driver pulled back six feet, and I asked him about it, and he said, oh yeah, that lion was not happy with the lionesses being tent- tense about the tracker being that close. So I can tell you Birnbaum's dimension of responsiveness
0: is really the central thing. So if, if you're looking at your own behavior, how, what would be a good way to gauge for someone to gauge their responsiveness so that they could see it happening for themselves?
1: Well, it's really based on noticing your partner's needs. What does your partner need your attention? Does your partner need to talk to you? Does your partner need affection? Does your partner need support, understanding? Um, Is your partner sad or down or angry or upset or anything, you know, do you respond to your partner's emotions? It's a sequential thing that measures responsiveness. Mm. And so there are some people who are tuned out and clueless and their desire is going to go down the toilet.
0: So your desire is leaving because you are not tuning in to the signals that would ignite your own desire.
1: That's what research suggests. Exactly. (laughs) It kind of turns
0: it on its ear, doesn't it? It does. Usually
1: you think, well, what is the person who's not uh, attractive doing wrong? Well, it's not that. It's the person who's not feeling desire and attraction. Who's messing up. By being disengaged and clueless and tuned out and non-responsive. Socially, socially unresponsive.
0: Well, I'm imagining that that situation, if you find yourself in it, that could be really painful for you because, if you're there, maybe you're there because, um, because it's been a long road of um, breaks in the connection and bids that haven't been met, and.
1: The guy is just an idiot.
0: (laughs) So, well, what hope is there for people who are with guys who are idiots?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's what we do therapy, uh, (laughs) trying
0: to really teach people,
1: you know, how to connect, you know, and how to build, um, how to build trust, how to build commitment in a relationship and how to, you know, how to be that person's safe haven, um so that you know for you they represent home itself
0: yeah what what does that arc look like for a couple who are you know who are at a place where they've grown either both of them have grown tired of each other or maybe one of them is still feeling it and is like yeah i i really i actually want to be with my partner but the other one is just like no I'm. I'm. In fact, I'm repulsed by the idea of being with you, and and I can imagine this couple being in a in what would feel like a really hopeless place. Um, Do you see couples get from there to the other side, and what does that journey look like?
1: We see it all the time, every day in therapy. We see it, and but
0: you know, there's there's
1: one dimension that you're kind of hinting at where it kind of gets hopeless. So when a person is repulsed by the other's presence, smell, you know appearance taste, you know put holding that person in their arms when they when they're disgusted by that, then there's not a lot you can do mm. and so some of the as you described, like you know it used to be there and and you know the flame is just a glowing ember now that we can work with and we can fan that glowing ember if people really want to work on it to something that's a passionate roaring fire and you know if they and the same thing is true for you know friends with benefits but if they're disgusted by
0: the other person there's not much we can do and maybe it's important to draw a distinction here, if there is one, between someone who, say, has always been kind of repulsed by their partner's smell and just thought, oh, maybe I'll get used to it, versus someone who was actually totally feeling it, and but now for some reason they're feeling repulsed. Are those two situations different?
1: No. I don't think so. I think repulsion is something, you know, I, you know, it's, uh, you're sort of getting at a word that really uh, has a very primal, primitive representation in the brain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it's really the insula in the brain that is the origin of both physical repulsion and disgust and moral repulsion and disgust, uh, both of those you know, are related to this primary brain structure in the limbic system that, you know, is, is, uh, the seat of that kind of emotional judgment. And, uh, I, I don't think you can go from disgust to passion. Mm. I think you can go, you can go from disinterest and disengagement passion and there are a lot of reasons for the disengagement a lot of times it's it's, it's, there's a lot of conflict sometimes it's because there's been a betrayal there's been an affair or a financial betrayal or pornography will do it very well a lot of pornography use uh, usually leads to that kind of uh, fracturing of trust and um, so you know that you can work with but when you know, when it's when there's a fundamental physical disgust. You know, we we are we are mammals, and um, and we are animals. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to have you've got to have that sort of desire. Um, when it's low, you can build it up, but when it's been replaced by repulsion, disgust, I don't think there's any help for it.
0: Mm. Yeah. And just to, so there are two directions that I want to explore there. The first being, so for that couple where it was never, it was never quite there. Do you see couples in the, in those circumstances finding ways to rediscover each other? Or I guess it's not really rediscovering, but discover each other anew to uncover that that, dimension in their relationship, I guess. Yes,
1: that's doable um and there are there are a lot of subcases in that category there yeah. you know there there are people who have never had an orgasm for example anorgaspic women you know there are different things you have to do to dismantle that kind of superficial symptom you know where you know there's just disinterest and they haven't you know they're not naturally attracted to one another that that you can build up if they're, they're not, if they're not repulsed and disgusted by one another, <laughs> then you can really do something there. And usually, um, you know, there are many avenues to explore there, but um, there's a trio of, of dimensions that you need to work on. And responsiveness is kind of the key. Uh, one dimension is really building trust, and another dimension is building commitment. And, um, and the third dimension is building physiological calm with one another. Mm. So there's kind of a trio of variables that we operate with. And the way you build trust is through tuning in to your partner's negative emotions, listening with understanding and compassion, not defensiveness, and not listening for rebuttal. So that kind of attunement is what builds trust. And transparency is the other thing that builds trust. You know, you can you're you're seen by your partner. There's no mystery. You know, there's no nothing hidden. There are no secrets. So um, that's how you build trust through attunement. And attunement is this very special kind of listening that you know we discovered is really the basis of building a trust and relationship. And in building commitment, uh, we learned we really learned from the 30-year research of a woman named Carol Rusbult R-U-S-B-U-L-T. And Carol Rusbult showed us that the key dimension in building commitment is making positive comparisons between your partner and real or imagined alternatives. So when you cherish your partner, when you cherish what you have and nurture gratitude for what you have with this person, you start building commitment. When you do the opposite, when you make negative comparisons between your partner and real or imagined alternatives, what Rust showed us was that then you begin on a pathway of nurturing resentment for what's missing in the relationship
2: mm-hmm. rather
1: than gratitude for what's there. And then you're on a pathway to betrayal. So trust, commi- trust through attunement, commitment through cherishing, and then physiological calm, and that is a complex thing. But it's really it's a mutual way of relating to one another that is soothing and not arousing. So, for example, we know what rouses people physiologically: being in attack mode or defensiveness mode, as opposed to being collaborative. So when you're collaborative, when you're really working together and more of a team, then people really are generally quite calm. And they also can laugh together, laugh at themselves. So that trio of variables, trust, commitment, and physiological calm, physiological soothing, um, is what really builds intimacy and connection in the relationship. And responsiveness is kind of in the middle of all of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, all of it is about being responsive, just like that lion was.
0: <laughs> um, and what you're finding is that, because we started talking about that in that question of could a couple open that dimension of their relationship if it had never really been there before, and it sounded like yeah, what you're usually,
1: seeing- I mean, you know, basically what you've got to do is you've got to um, unpack the symptom of... Uh, them not being attracted because that's kind of a superficial complaint, and you have to really look at the anatomy of that complaint. And what we find is that the anatomy of that complaint has to do with those three, this trio of variables trust, commitment, and physiological calm. And in all of those, it's really about responsiveness to one another.
0: Mm. Yeah, and so in the going in the other direction, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up both trust and this pathway toward betrayal and um, the need for the need for safety and, and attachment in terms of sustaining attraction. Um, That's right. And so you brought up the, the case of someone who has gone through a betrayal whether that be financial or sexual, emotional, however. um, Now, you've probably heard people who have gone through that say, I can't even imagine being with you right now. Like, that thought disgusts me. So this is where I wanted to go back to that nuance around disgust and repulsion. And because I'm hearing you say, like, if you're experiencing that on a physical level, that you could be in serious trouble there. But then there's how does that mix in with the safety response that comes up when you have suffered a, a rupture in attachment in your in your relationship?
1: Yeah, we have a, a, we're actually engaged in a in a randomized clinical trial, a national trial, um, for helping couples deal with uh, uh, recover from an affair. So we're doing the study now, and we have we have a therapy that we've developed over the last decade that we're now trying out experimentally. And uh, so I have an an approach, a therapeutic approach to dealing with what happens, what's happened when there's an affair. So, um, so part of what, what you have to deal with is the fact that we now know that the person who's been betrayed, we call the hurt partner, uh, is experiencing a post traumatic stress disorder as a result of the betrayal, mm-hmm. and that that PTSD reaction is usually a constellation of emotions and can include disgust, can include horror, uh, and you know all you know really all the negative emotions kind of come in. You know, PTSD is usually thought of as just involving fear, you know, and you know it's a very interesting constellation and because um it doesn't just involve fear it involves anger and rage and, uh, and depression and sadness and connected with it is often you know um feeling feelings that that are close to homicidal you know rage at being betrayed and also self harm as well as part of it So it's a very complex reaction to betrayal, but it's closest to PTSD. And one of the things that's interesting about PTSD is that uh, the American Psychiatric Association and its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Edition 5, just came out. The definition of PTSD has varied over the years and mostly has been associated initially with combat. Stress combat trauma, mm-hmm. but now you know it's it's recognized It's being all kinds of trauma that create this constellation of symptoms, flashbacks, um, ruminations about you know the thing that caused it, uh, avoidance of, of anything connected with the cues that were associated with the trauma and uh, and one of the things that's that's wrong with the American Psychiatric Association definition is that it doesn't include anything about relationships, but we know, and this is solid research evidence uh, confirmed in meta-analyses, which are analyses of, of studies, many studies, that, that people's interpersonal relationships are messed up when they experience, when they experience any kind of trauma and have a post-traumatic stress reaction to trauma. So um, the betrayal has the hurt partner is experiencing PTSD and unless that's treated, um, you can't get back to rekindling trust. So we have a three-part therapy and the first part is atonement where, you know, the person who's done the betrayal really needs to be remorseful and listen the consequences of the betrayal and there has to be an emotional bridge connected between the hurt partner and the, and the, uh, and the betrayer. And the second phase is attunement. You know, that's one of those variables that I talked about in, in the triad of variables. Um, remember that, you know, which is commitment, trust, and physiological calm. Yes. Well, attunement comes out to be very important because in almost all, Not not all, but most of affairs, there's been a gradual deterioration of intimacy in the relationship. So people have been avoiding one another. They're avoiding conflict. They're avoiding self-disclosure, telling their partner what they're unhappy about. And they've usually been leading parallel lives for some time that leave both people very lonely. Quite often, they haven't had sex in years before the affair. So, um, in attunement, the second phase, you have to build that bridge and create, you know, this trusting relationship where they really are listening to one another, hearing one another. They have a, they have blueprints for dealing with conflict and dealing with the accumulated um, regrettable incidents that they haven't processed. Because in all relationships, as it as relationships uh, continue they accumulate these incidents where they've hurt each other and they haven't talked about it. They haven't processed it. So, you know, you have to do that in the attunement phase. And the third phase is called attachment and that's really in, you know, Carol Rustbolt's investment in the relationship and, uh, and committing to the relationship really, um, making it extremely personal. So here, here we can, you know, really rebuild a couple sexual relationship or, Sometimes build it for the first time. And the key there is responsiveness and emotional investment.
0: And I'm hearing, too, um, first in terms of what you were talking about, that, you know, part of building the ability to be attuned also comes back to the uh, physiological calm and being able to to hear um, what's going on with your partner without you know, descending into a mass of being triggered and hijacked yourself or to be able to bring yourself back online if you notice that happening for yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, part of what we're part of what we do when we train therapists to do this kind of therapy is we review other other approaches to, uh, you know, other approaches to building uh, rebuilding the relationship after an affair. And all, and all these other approaches basically, you know, are saying, well, you know, the relationship wasn't that great, you know, and that's why the affair happened in marriage number one. Now in marriage number two, you know, you've got to lower your expectations and, you know, don't expect so much from one another and try to be more independent of one another and, uh, you know, and be nice and, you know, and, and, uh, deal with conflict, but you know, don't expect too much. And we have the opposite point of view. We want to help couples build a great relationship with great sex, not just an ordinary relationship or a relationship where they're slightly less miserable. So (laughs) we really want to create, you know, marriage number two, that is going to be wonderful. Yeah. So we, you know, we're trying to do kind of the impossible, take People from a sh- totally shattered relationship to a great relationship, but it doesn't make sense to you know to do anything else, right? I mean, you know, why would you settle for just making these people slightly less miserable? Right. And that's kind of the science that we have right now. Uh, before we entered it, was a science that had very small effect sizes, and you know, it could take a couple who was just a little below the mean in happiness and move them to just a little bit above the mean in happiness <laughs> okay so if if that's your client population then you're going to feel pretty good about your work as a therapist but most of our couples you know are like two and three standard deviations below the mean mm. especially you know when you're dealing with with a couple whose relationship is kind of shattered by an affair where you know trust is gone everything's gone basically
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, coming back to what you were saying about, um, uh, Russ Balt's work and commitment, how, how you, um, let's say someone sees that pattern happening for themselves. So, um, the, and when I say that pattern, I mean, they start going into grasses, greener kind of comparisons. That's Um, right. So if you see that happening and now you're gonna see that happening and be like, oh, this is exactly what John Gottman was talking about. Like I'm, I'm reinforcing the negative instead of the positive. But what other than saying like, well, don't do that, what's a practical way that someone, when they see, oh, I'm doing that, like I'm imagining being with so-and-so or if nothing else, just not being with this person being better, um, how can they steer that back in a more positive direction?
1: Baum's research gives us the key because when you're starting to make negative comparisons, you're quite a ways down the cascade because you haven't been turning toward your partner's bids. You haven't been being responsive to your partner. You've been withdrawing and investing less emotionally in the relationship. As you start investing less in the relationship and you're, you know, you're you're protecting yourself you're not staying vulnerable you're not staying open you're not you're not being responsive to your partner then you start seeing the grass is greener but you can do something about it you can tune back in you can start to really listen you can start to turn toward your partner's bids for connection because the result of turning away is you make these negative comparisons? The negative comparisons, in other words, uh, even though they're a great predictor, they're not the place to put your fulcrum. Uh, they're not the fulcrum to put your lever. I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to make change happen. You can't tell yourself, "Oh, the grass is greener at home." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't. You can't start working on your mind you have to start working on the fact that you are investing less and less in the relationship and you are being unresponsive to your partner. Uh, Now, it could be that your partner is being less responsive to you. So, you know, this is a dyadic thing rather than an individual personality variable. So you've got to, you know, as a therapist, you've got to look at the contribution of both people to this equation because trust isn't built just by one person, nor is commitment built by one person. Nor is physiological calm built by just one person. It's something they do together or fail to do together.
0: So, that b- yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and it leads to the next question, which is like imagining. So there, there are two places I want to go right now. And I'm going to maybe going to save the best for last. So the first is imagining, okay, I'm on one side of that equation. So then the equation is like, let's say I'm the partner that wishes my partner were showing up more in terms of attraction and desire. And I still, I'm still there, but they're not there. And I hear you saying like, you got to be more responsive. And then on the flip side, let's say I'm the partner who... Desire has to be more responsive. So the okay, so great. I'm glad you made that distinction. So and because this is, I think, an important clarification, if I'm that partner who's feeling a little bit despondent, like I don't know how to reach my partner who is feeling like I'm still there, but they're feeling shut down. And um, like, I want them to be more responsive, but they're shut down. What can I do in those circumstances?
1: But you have to understand where the shutdown comes from. You have to look at the anatomy of, of the symptom you're identifying. Mm. So, you know, the, there's a shutdown, but, you know, it can be due to many things, right? It could be really that the, that the couple has experienced a real um, injury, emotional injury, that the regrettable incident that hasn't been processed has created a, a, a chasm between them. And they haven't been able to talk about it. So a good example is maybe, uh, you know, she's experiencing low desire and I'm not. Okay. And part of, part of what what's happened is that we've been trying to have a baby and she had a miscarriage and I said, you know, just get over it, you know, we'll get pregnant again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And actually she's pregnant again, but she was very alone mourning that miscarriage that lost baby. She was very invested in it, and by telling her to just get over it, I've really pushed her very far away and Now you know she's pregnant, but she's feeling tremendous distance from me, so that could be one cause of it, right This real um, attachment injury, Sue Johnson calls it right right It's an emotional injury that has been created in the relationship, and there the recipe is to process that emotional injury and we have a blueprint for doing that and we do that you know and in our in our therapy and it's quite powerful if that's the problem now there could be other problems Um, you know another example could be that she actually has been traumatized in some way and she hasn't really talked about it she hasn't really fully processed it or it's come back she's been sexually molested or raped or, uh, you know, there's something there that is coming back, some kind of earlier trauma. Well, then you need a different kind of intervention, right? There you've got to really deal with the trauma because uh, sometimes uh, classic sort of cases, sex is great, and then they get married, and then suddenly one partner has no desire. Well, now they've become family, and if the, if there was a traumatic sexual attack that happened within the family, if it was some kind of incestuous event, which is, we now know is very common, then that's a different cause. Mm. That's really you know, a post-traumatic stress disorder that has surfaced. That has to be treated a different way. It's not a, a specific regrettable incident in the relationship, but it's, it's, a, it's a trauma that has an impact on the relationship. Now, you know, in in each of these cases, you have to, I'm just giving you two examples of how you can, how you unpack the low desire and you have to understand the low desire. Sometimes low desire is really because this is a person who, you know, really is an orgasmic and hasn't really even ever had an orgasm. That's a different kind of situation, right? So, um, you know, there we have to really go to Lonnie Barback's approach, and Lonnie Barback is a is a sex therapist who who works with inorgasmic orgasmic women, and she wrote a book called For Yourself, where she helps women to really discover their own sexuality, their own desire. Sometimes, you know, the sexuality, uh, low desire is really a result. <clears throat> of things not going well sexually within this relationship. And in that case, we've got to really look at the anatomy of that. So when you identify a symptom like low desire uh, or low attraction, you don't know what the anatomy is just by having that symptom. You've got to really dismantle that symptom and look at the mechanism that created it. Yeah, in order to do adequate therapy.
0: Yeah. And I want to shine the spotlight there on what you've said repeatedly during this conversation, which is for the most part, lack of attraction is a symptom and there are other underlying root causes. So if you're focused on the symptom, how do I well, how do I generate attraction without looking at the root causes, then you're probably not going to get anywhere or at least your progress is going to be a lot smaller than if you're focused on those root causes. Yeah,
1: you know, it's a lot like uh, being bored. You know, if you say, well, one person is bored, they're bored with the relationship, then what you go, when you hear that symptom, you think, well, they're probably with somebody who's boring. They're with somebody who's just not very interesting. But actually, boredom is an inability to become interested so the problem is with the bored person most of the time, not with the person they're bored with.
0: Yeah. And what's your expert way of communicating that to the board person? Because they probably don't really want to hear that the problem is actually theirs.
1: Yeah, I know. And that's why part of therapy is being confrontational. Mm. It's trying to understand the, the symptom of something like I'm bored with this relationship or I'm bored with you and understand, unpack the symptom. And most of the time, that boredom is an inability of that person to connect with the world, to really be alive and function in the world, as opposed to it being the relationship sucks. Yeah. Sometimes it is the relationship sucks because we know that when people form a committed relationship, You know, we know this from the UCLA study done by the Sloan Center. They studied dual career couples in Los Angeles who had young children and two careers. And basically, you know, once they they got a house together and kids and jobs, they ignored the relationship. You know, they talked to each other an average of 35 minutes a week. And mostly it was about errands that they were talking to each other. So they stopped having fun. They stopped having adventure. They stopped being sexual. They stopped courting one another. So when you have a low desire relationship, it's basically they have ignored one another. Right. They've ignored the relationship <laughs> over and over and over again. That is the anatomy. And, and so how do you get them to really tune into the relationship again? It's that trio of variables, trust, commitment, and physiological calm. Building
0: awesome. That shape. awesome. And now let's just turn it on its head for a minute, because some people who listen to this show, they have amazing relationships and they have great sex and they still are really attracted to each other. What do you suggest for people in those circumstances to like it's not just an ember; They've actually got a fire going. How do they keep stoking that in ways that aren't cliche or maybe things are cliche because they work?
1: Well, um you know that 's a great question Neil and the answer is that there's been quite a wonderful study done, and we 've also done a study in this in this uh, same domain, uh, comparing people in in uh, long term committed relationships who have great sex, great romance, and passion, and are in love with one another not, they don 't just love one another they 're in love, which we know has, does not have a shelf life from. You know, from the research um, of uh, Helen Fisher, you know, we know that being in love, you know, doesn't have a year and a half shelf life. It can last forever. And when you compare those people to people like them whose sex life they say, you know, is not very satisfying, they don't enjoy it, basically the people who have a great sex life are doing about 13 things that the other people aren't doing. There's a baker's dozen of things that people are doing when they have a great romantic and sexual relationship with one another. When the passion is there, when they're in love with one another. And if you look at the list of 13, it's not rocket science. It's really not complicated. And I can, I can read those to you. I have them on my computer. Great. Here are the, is the Baker's dozen habits of people who have a great sex life everywhere on the planet. It's been studied in 24 countries. Number one, they say, I love you every day and mean it. So they don't do it perfunctorily. They're really saying, I love you, and it's coming from the heart. Number two, they kiss one another passionately for no reason at all. Not just when they want to have sex. They just grab one another and have a passionate kiss, you know, which is at least a six-second kiss. It's a real kiss. Number three, they give one another surprise romantic gifts and compliments, on a regular basis. Number four, they know what turns their partners on and off erotically. So they have a love map. Number four is they have a love map of their partner's erotic world. They know what steps on the accelerator and what steps on the sexual break. Number five, they're physically affectionate even in public. Number six, they keep playing and having fun together. So fun is really important. You know, it's one of the first things to go. The UCLA study shows, you know, the one uh, the Sloan Center did. Number seven, they cuddle often. So cuddling is really the gateway to great sex, just like kissing is. Mm -hmm. And if you want to read more about that, there's a book called The Science of Kissing that shows, uh, reviews a study that shows that German men who kiss their wives goodbye when they leave for work live 5 years longer than german men who don't kiss their wives goodbye when they go to work. Number 8, they make sex a priority, not the last item of a long to-do list. So they're not having sex trying to have sex when they're exhausted. <laughs> they're they're actually, you know, making it an important thing. Number 9, they stay good friends. Number 10, they can talk comfortably about their sex life. Number 11, they have weekly romantic dates. So not dates to talk about who does what when or to argue but to really build romance and that means they get to talk to each other uh it's dinner and a movie but it's a long dinner number 12 they take romantic vacations and number 13 they turn toward their partner's bids for connection so that's not very hard to do i mean that's not rocket science uh those 13 things but It does take being mindful that courtship doesn't end after you say, I do. It keeps going. It's there every day. Building trust is something you're doing every day. Building commitment, choosing your partner, you do that every day. And saying to your partner, there is nobody on the planet that holds a candle to you. You're the love of my life. And... Really listening so that that physiological calm is there. That's the trio of variables, trust, commitment, and
0: calm. Plus putting these 13 things on your fridge. That's right. (laughs) Right. I'd be happy to email them to you, Neil. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll um, make sure that we include that in our detailed show guide for this episode, which you can get by going to neilsatin.com slash Gottman3 Um, or texting the word PASSION to the number 33444 and following the instructions. Um, John, if I may, I have one last question for you today. Yeah. So, John, a lot of what I encourage listeners to do is because so often we're stuck, and we're stuck in a way of even how we think about the situation that we're in. And so what's required is to step back and come up with something new. And sometimes that can come from listening to an episode and hearing something new. I'm wondering for you personally, you're so prolific. There's so, you know, so much research that you've done. What is something that you do when you're stuck? Do you have like a personal thing that you do where you recognize I'm stuck right now? And, and how do you unstick yourself? mean personally or in a relationship? I think just on a personal level, yeah.
1: Well, um, what I do is I play the banjo, and I play the flute. So when I do that, it's like I've had a vacation. And I'm not a very good meditator. You know, I share that with the fictional character Sherlock Holmes, who said, you know i can't relax i have to work very hard on something else something entirely <laughs> different yeah so that's com- kind of what i do i i learn a tune on the banjo and the flute and i do that for an hour and and then i kind of let my mind wander somewhere else and i usually get unstuck when that happens
0: great thank you i i'm was hoping that you'd have something kind of cool like that to offer those of us who are wondering, how do the masters do it? So,
1: <laughs> well, R. H. Crumb, the great cartoonist, once said, "You know, to cure depression, what we need to do is issue everybody a banjo." <laughs> right, that will cure everyone it's really impossible from impossible to be the best when you're playing a tune on the banjo.
0: <laughs> true, true. Unless you're, you know, Steve Martin, or uh, I mean, oh, he... Steve
1: Martin, my hero.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, John, thank you so much again for for joining me here on Relationship Alive, for joining us, offering your wisdom. It's always such a treat to to talk and I really appreciate your your generosity with your time and wisdom today.
1: You're welcome, Neil. You're a great interviewer. Thanks so
0: much. My pleasure. And you know, it truly is a pleasure being here. I'm always blown away by the unbelievable generosity of the guests here on the Relationship Alive podcast who have been just so forthcoming with their wisdom and their time and every day I feel blessed to be putting this podcast together for you and if you are finding this podcast to be helpful um, you can actually make a contribution to help ensure that it continues and the way to do that is simply by visiting neilsatin.com support, or you can text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and just choose something that feels right for you. So thank you in advance if you are able to do that. I so appreciate it. Okay, so now, if you recall, at the very beginning, we're not done yet. There's more to cover, and I was so blessed to be able to talk to Sue Johnson after my conversation with John so I could ask her some follow-up questions and see how things unfold for her in terms of how she envisions the unfolding of attraction between two people and, in particular, what to do when the spark isn't quite there anymore. So Sue Johnson, thank you so much for being here with us on the 100th episode of the Relationship Alive podcast. And let's dive in. Let's start talking about the dance of attraction. And what is it that we need to know in order to figure out how to sustain it and how to pick it back up when the spark is lost?
3: I think the tricky part about it is that when you say that people say they've lost traction, I mean, that can happen for lots of different reasons. One of the big ones is, you know, if people have been together for a long time, and they've been caught in a really negative dance, the most common one in North America is one person pursues and tries to get connection, the other person feels attacked or withdraws, that dance just takes over uh, the relationship. And people become exhausted, they feel abandoned and rejected. And there's a certain point in time where if that goes on long enough and it's painful enough and people start to feel helpless, they begin to grieve and give up. And they might not quite know how to express what's going on. One of the problems in relationships is we haven't had a language for expressing this drama, for really understanding it. So they say things like, I've fallen out of love, or um, I don't feel the attraction anymore. Whereas when you go in and talk to them, couples like that, really, when you talk to them a bit more, what they're telling you is, um, I have exhausted myself in this relationship, and I have felt rejected and abandoned, and I've gone through the grief process, and I've, I've given up, I've started to detach And so I don't feel the attraction anymore. And if that's really true, and you can go in, especially if you work the way we do, where we go into emotions and help people really um, get clear about their emotions, um, you, you know, can talk about that with them and you can get clear that that's what's happened. And indeed, um, that can be, you know, people basically, when people really detach and have grieved the relationship, um, I don't think people come back. You know, it's the, th- these emotional processes are real. They have real consequences. Um, and when people really grieve and detach and say things like, I see you as a friend and I don't feel this need to be close to you, um, that can be real. And no, that, that couple won't necessarily come back from that. And we can help couples c- get clear about that, talk about it. And sometimes we help couples... Um, accept that and talk about their relationship together in a way that they can heal each other a little bit from what happened in the relationship and learn from it so they can go on and and have a better relationship next time. But that's really different from a couple who come in and they're stuck in a negative place and they say things like, um, well, you know, I just don't feel the attraction." That happens all the time. And uh, in emotionally focused couple therapy, the first thing I do is I say, um, have you read my book for the public, Hold Me Tight? Um, Because my experience is that often people read that book and then they get what's going on and they stop feeling so hopeless. And when they stop feeling so helpless, hopeless, they allow themselves to um, admit to that feelings that they still want to be with their partner, they just don't know how. Mm. So sometimes that happens because it's kind of the the no attraction is like really saying, I don't want to feel this way. It hurts too much. I feel hopeless. But the other thing that happens is, people. I talk to people. I say, well, it sounds like you guys have been caught in this dance of disconnection. You you don't know how to connect anymore. You know attraction. Um, I can't remember the word now, but it comes from the Latin. It's it's all about being pulled towards somebody. And that's about how somebody engages with you. It's about their presence. It's about how open and responsive they are. And um, that's a very fascinating thing. You know, and we think it's all about sexuality, but it's a whole lot bigger than that. I'll give an example. Um, I dance Argentine tango. And um you can you can dance with somebody who's an expert dancer very technically good and you can say to yourself oh this person is dancing very technically good um perfect tango and it doesn't turn you on it's not engaging because he somehow he still feels a long way away or he or she because you know you dance with women too um they feel somehow a long way away. They're not really with you. They're not really engaged. And then you can dance with somebody who isn't anywhere near as expert, doesn't know all the moves, isn't, um, you know, technically a great dancer. But the way they dance with you, they're connected. They risk being engaged. They stay with you. They stay with the music. They play. They're, um, they're present they're engaged, they're open, and you start to play together and that is intoxicating. So you can have a wonderful dance. <clears throat> this can be a stranger, okay, That you and you only dance for about 10 minutes with somebody. You can have this amazing dance and it's all about how emotionally present you can be. So we teach couples that disconnection happens in all relationships um, and, you know, when you're disconnected, that attraction is kind of like it's, it's sort of turned off. You know, it's like, you know, you, you're just not feeling it. You're not tuned into it. And that happens in all relationships. The secret is to know how to turn it on. And that's what happy couples know. It's not that happy couples don't fight and get disconnected. Of course they do. But they know how to turn towards each other. <clears throat> they feel safe enough with each other to turn towards each other and risk Reaching for each other and engaging again, so it's interaction is About how you engage with somebody you know, and I see it all the time in couple therapy Where people will say oh well, you know um, We don't have any sex life for example or we haven't made love for two years or you know I just don't feel the need to be with somebody well, of course You're trying to shut down that need if every time you try to get it met you you get hurt, right? but You know, then they start to come in and talk in a safe place in our sessions, or they start to read Hold Me Tight and do some of the exercises and the conversations, or they go to one of our Hold Me Tight groups, our educational groups, and they come in and they start taking risks with each other. Um, An older couple where she's very quiet and um, sort of depressed, and he's saying, well, you know, am I really going to be with you for the rest of my life? And, you know, I don't really feel that attracted to you anymore. And I feel very guilty. And the last time that I really felt attracted to you was way back in this time. Right. And that was a time when we were happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I would need that again. And this quiet little lady, after some support from me and after some safety, turns to this man and says, well, actually, um, I I keep a lot back and um, you probably can't find me and you probably can't see me. And so why would you be wanting to lean in and feel that pull towards me? The bottom line is um, I wasn't happy in that time that you're talking about. I was just hiding out and trying to please you. I wasn't happy. And the truth is um, you're amazingly dominating and you take me over. And so I hide out. And But I'm getting tired of it now. I don't want to do it anymore. And her partner looks shocked. And he sits up in his chair. And he sits back. And he doesn't know what to do with it. And then he leans in and he says, You never told me that. Listen to his voice. It's like he's caught. He's fascinated. He's interested. I mean, this is what happens when people risk being really open and present with each other, Um, the same person can be completely new and intoxicating. You could fall in love with somebody a thousand times. Um, If you know how to engage and stay present and be open and responsive, and of course, openness and responsiveness is the basis of a secure bond. We know that. We know from the science of love, we know that. So I said a lot there. Maybe I want to be quiet and you want to ask
0: another <laughs> question. <laughs> so many possible questions. As you said, these are these are big topics and we're we're working on a short time frame here. But what you just said actually gave me a lot of hope, even for the couples that you initially described, where one has maybe even gone through the grieving process, if what they've grieved is the old relationship and the things that were good, and maybe the things that were not so good, then I could see that if they were at least willing to reengage, then in that presence that you were just describing, there may be the sparks of something new, a rebirth for their relationship.
3: Yes, but it's a question of degree. Um, we really do detach. I mean, that's functional it's functional for human beings to sometimes give up and and let go of a need. So we really do detach. And there is a point where I think people do detach. But um, the thing you said about hope is true because, you know, we haven't understood love, we haven't understood what goes wrong, and we haven't understood how to put it right. So lots of times the word discouragement comes up for me. Couples who come in who, if you don't understand the science of love and you don't use know how to work with emotion like we do in EFT you know couples can come into a therapist or, or do all kinds of read all kinds of books and they it's like they just feel discouraged and so they just turn that they they turn that engagement down okay and what we do in couple therapy is we turn that engagement we help people be open to each other and we turn the engagement up And there's a lot of hope in that. I mean, our research says that we get 70 to 75% of couples, um, you know, through to be feeling completely satisfied and recovered with their relationship. And we get 86% of couples saying that they've, in our therapy, that they've significantly improved their relationship. And our follow-up results are great. The follow-up stays stable. So, you know, yes, we're incredibly hopeful. Lots of times, people are so discouraged, they're shutting down. You know, and if I dance with you, and you're distant and shut down, you I'm not going to feel any pull towards you. I'm not right. going to feel, I'm not going to, there's no spark. I'm turning down the music all the time. What we do in EFT is we turn the music up, and we say, dance. And people surprise each other, that, <laughs> like that lady did. People. So, she surprised herself, let alone her her partner, right? Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, there's so much power in the truth, you know, like I, right, could, yeah, I, I can imagine. I, like, I'm
3: thinking of another, yeah. I'm thinking of another couple where the man kept saying, I can't live in this relationship because you don't give me enough sex. And she would accommodate and give reasons and then kind of withdraw. Literally she, she'd move into the uh, basement um, bedroom. It's much more powerful when she turns in therapy with a little bit of help from me and says, you know what, you're right. I shut down. I don't give you sex. I don't feel turned on because I want to scream at you and tell you, stop pushing me around. Stop pushing me around. If you want to dance with me, invite me and then let me dance. Stop pushing me around because I don't want to feel sexy with you when you're pushing me around. And he he has a hard time. he struggles, and then he says i i never you never said that to me. I never understood you're so beautiful when you talk like this." <laughs> 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 right because she's real yeah she's she's real. It's like that moment of engagement. if we think back to our relationships, um you know, I can remember." uh meeting my husband and um 28 years ago and my friends um who I was very close to these two women were you know soulmates they basically said to me oh he's um, no absolutely he's you, you know you should stay away from him he's he's like he's too loud he's too he's too he comes in too close he comes in too fast he's he's intrusive he's you know <laughs> and and I just what I remember is I started to smile, and they said, "What are you smiling for?" And I said, "That's why I like him. I like him because he's out on the dance floor." And he says, "Where are you? Are you going to play? Are you going to come and be with me? Are you going to, you know, are you? I'm, you know, I'm open. You can tell me anything. You can confront me. You can, you know, you can turn me down. I'm still going to be here. You can." That was intoxicating. I mean, that was the the strongest attraction I've ever felt in my life because this person was so totally present. That is what pulls us to people. Um, It even pulls us to people in movies, you know?
0: So people are, I think, becoming more and more adept around presence. Um, It's become more part of our modern consciousness, like... Oh, I'm actually not in this moment right now. I'm dissociated, or I'm I'm trapped in my story or oh, my expectations. Ho- I—that's one of the missions of of the podcast, and I know of your work as well. Um, yeah, I'm curious for so so many people, they still though they meet, and they are like prescribed rituals of courtship that, um, plus all of the dopamine that's coursing through our system and i feel yeah. like what we're talking about is this different nuance that emerges like emergent attraction when couples like abandon the the patterns that brought them together if they're not lucky enough to be like totally present from the get-go and and discovering that presence with each other and what i'm wondering is for people listening to the show if maybe you have like one bit of wisdom Let's say for someone on either end of that spectrum. So, if you're listening to this show and you're thinking, "Oh my God, I just I want to connect so badly with my partner," and I'm just and they're they're running away and running away, and I'm not sure how to make that happen. So that's one person. And then the other person would be the, "Oh my God, I'm not really sure if I'm in it, and I feel my partner wanting me, but ah, I just I just want to push them away." Can you offer a, a like one? bit of wisdom a place to start like a next question or a next action step for either of those people
3: um i'm not sure i can offer one bit of wisdom we, we you know we want an, a like a pill for you know um something that's bigger than a pill but well, I'd, I'd happily t- I talk to you longer we... but
0: i'm trying to honor our, our time <laughs> commitment yeah,
3: i know but what we what we know if we look at all the people that have repaired their relationships and improved their relationships in, in emotionally focused couples therapy and in our Hold Me Tight educational groups, and there's thousands of those all over the world now, if we look at all those folks, there's common patterns. And, I mean, what do people do? We help people understand relationships, feel safe enough to take risks. But in the end, what do people do to pull each other towards What do I do to pull my partner towards me to help my partner feel safe and connected with me um, in my relationships? And what do we see people do in therapy? They take risks. You know, they take risks. They say, you know, instead of me saying to you, why don't you talk to me more, which pushes you away and Mm -hmm. turns off all your attraction neurons uh, because I become dangerous. If I can risk being vulnerable and open, I say to you, you know, I was realizing today, I just have this longing for us to talk the way we used to a few months ago. I have this longing just to feel you close to me and to, to know that I have your attention. And I just long for that. And uh, it's scary for me when I feel this distance between us. That pulls the person towards you. You might have to, if you're not used to doing it and he's not used to hearing it or she's not used to hearing it, you might have to do it a couple of times, which is hard because you know, it's a new, it's, it might be a new cue, but that's what people do. Or somebody says, you're right, I do shut you out. I shut you out and then there's no music between us and everything's flat and we don't feel any attraction because emotion is the music of the dance. There's no music. So I do shut you out. I shut you out because I'm scared that I can never please you. I can never, it can never be good enough for you. And that's, that's terrifying for me. And the other person goes, oh, I, I didn't know that. Like, you know, I thought you just didn't care. And suddenly there's this spark. There's this, it's like love is a safe adventure. You know, you have to be open and present and out on the dance floor to start the dance. You have to be willing to, to risk and to start up the dance, right? And once you can feel each other and, and be vulnerable and feel that little bit of safety, then you can play. You can go anywhere. You can make up the dance. You can, the possibilities are endless. And that's when a relationship is endlessly exciting. It takes off and you get that attraction happening again and again and again. It's the thrill of being reached for, the thrill of somebody risking being open to you, the thrill of feeling needed, the thrill of this um, synchrony that you go into where you tune into somebody. And you talked about rituals. I mean, you even see it in birds. You see it in, in all mammals who rear young together and need the other uh, partner to do this, right, who depend on the other partner to rear their young. You know, you see swans doing rituals, they move together, they dip their their heads at the same time they intertwine their necks. I watched swans do this a swan set of swans do this for two hours in um in Belgium one time, and you know, they do it again and again, and they're saying, "Are you there for me? Can I read your cues? Can I depend on you? Will you come and play and engage with me?" And the answer has got to be yes, yes, yes." So human beings. I mean, that's what creates the bond in the relationship, the attraction. That's what pulls people close to you, is you show up and you 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 say who you are. You take a risk. The other person comes close. You move towards them. The other person moves closer. They take a risk. It's this incredible, you start to know that each person wants to come close. It's very intoxicating. I mean, we focused on how intoxicating sex is. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, but you know, sex is all tied up with this, of course, because that's what we do when we when we have good love making. But I'm talking about this emotional dance. It's intoxic. I tell you where it comes out. Where people are used to seeing it, is with babies. Mm. Babies pull us towards them. They they have to do that. They're going to you know because we they need us to survive. But if you look at a baby, you know, and the baby feels safe with you. The baby opens their eyes wide and reaches their hands. I mean, that's almost um irresistible. You don't say, I'm so attracted to this baby <laughs> <laughs> But you know, people and they respond. Your people's eyes open wide, they they talk in a sing song voice, they lean in and then the baby comes closer to and the baby starts to laugh and this is this game of attraction, connection. Synchrony and people, and they start to the baby starts to imitate your face. You start to imitate the baby's face, and there's this moment of togetherness, and that is so rewarding for human beings. Yeah, that is like the biggest unconditional reinforcing moments. I think in human life, you know, it's like the we remember these these moments of synchrony connection, and if you can when people can't do that anymore or they've lost the way to that then they start to shut down and then indeed they don't attract each other
0: i'm reminded of what you were when you were describing the person on the dance floor who knows all the moves but you still don't yeah. feel connected to them yeah. and um and how knowing all the moves can can be something that maybe keeps someone safe, but also keeps them from experiencing that dynamism that you're describing. And That's right. So before I let you go, and we've already gone a little bit over the time that we said That's we would okay. do, so I apologize. Um
3: uh, no, it's my fault. I talk a lot.
0: Well I wasn't gonna say anything. No, just kidding. So um <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering, so let's say now I'm talking to you, the person who's listening and is thinking like, yeah, I'm like, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I'm feeling it with my partner. And, and you and maybe you're even looking at yourself and you're seeing like your own lack of willingness to engage because probably there's some sort of risk for you there. I have yeah. a suspicion, Sue, that your your advice for this person is probably a lot similar to your advice for the person who's doing all that longing and desiring. Um, but I'm wondering yes. if we're speaking directly Reach to the person. It. Yeah, and how? And so they've identified that's what's going on for them. What's What's a good risk for them? A oh, good way to to tune into like a something. A good that's, risk is to yeah. simply
3: come out onto the dance floor and say, "Hey, I can't find you." Mm. Where are you? Um, I'm I'm missing our closeness. I I somehow, I, I want to connect. I don't know how. And this is a bit scary. This is a bit difficult for me. It's hard. I, I don't know how to do it right. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how to do it. See, people think they're supposed to know how to do it. They're supposed to do it right, or the partner's going to despise them, or, you know. But my experience is, It's just being present. You don't have to be perfect in love. You have to be present. So it's just being present. I've seen people say, I don't know how to do this. Um, I don't want to make you feel, I don't want to blame you. I don't want to put you down. I don't want to criticize you. I just feel so, what the lady say in my office, I'm starved. I just want to feel that connection with you again. It's so precious to me and I don't know how to do it. How can I help you feel safe? And I want, because she's talking about him but she's saying I need that closeness she's really risking mm. and his eyes filled with tears and he he tries to her and he reaches out his hand and you know that it that triggers all his longing to be close that pulls him towards her you know it's 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 a fascinating topic this whole attraction thing you know mm. it's about what pulls you towards somebody what pushes you away it, you know how to come close and dance together.
0: Yeah, great. Well, and, and John Gottman just the other day, and he's you guys are going to be together in this episode virtually. Good, you know, I'm glad. Um, he was talking about how if you're not feeling it, a lot of that could be how you've shut down your responsiveness to your partner. So even finding ways That's right. to simply yeah. um, to re-engage on the simplest level as well as the most risky level, like that, that begins the dance again.
3: Yes. The tricky part is, um, I mean, we're talking about, I mostly see very distressed couples. So that's true. You can try to re-engage again and help each other feel safe like going to a movie. You know, one of the reasons the attraction dies is people just don't put any energy into it. They put, they have their, they have their relationship running on empty and then they wonder why the car isn't moving. Well, duh. You know, if you don't, If you don't give each other any, I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's so true. If you don't give each other any attention or time, yeah, you're right. That attraction is going to start to just fade. It's just going to trickle away, right? So, yes, doing things together. But the tricky part about it is, you know, it's it's also an issue of going through the motions. That only works if you're going to actually, when you go to the movie, you're actually going to like share a little bit and take a little bit of risk with each other and reach for each other on an emotional level. You know, you can do all kinds of rituals and tasks and, you know, try to be skillful. This is about the tango again. You can be skillful and do all the right things, but if you're not kind of taking any emotional risks or really, you know, being open with each other, then it's just a movie and, you know, it it doesn't work. So I think... It's all about engaging with people.
0: Yeah, I wonder if even for the person who, say, isn't feeling the attraction, if they could even just speak that but find a way to speak it in a safe way and if their partner can hear it in a safe way, if that in and of itself could be the starting point. Some of it,
3: yes, and I think it it helps a lot to just talk about you and not the other person.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: You know, we say, well, you just really aren't, that attractive to me anymore that's devastating right that's talking about the other person or you're not this enough or you're not that enough um it's different if you say i can't find you know i i i somehow have lost this pull towards you i've somehow lost my feeling of of longing for connection i don't know what's happened i feel like we've lost that That magic that we had in our dance, I don't know how to find it again. Um, I I don't know what to do here. I'm confused, right? That's different. I mean, the partner has got much more chance of listening to that, Mm. right? It's much more... I mean, the partner is still going to have a hard time listening to it. I don't want to hear someone I love say that. But there's some room to move there.
0: Right, and resisting um, the urge to, to jump in and try to fix it. Oh, well, you're not feeling that or you're confused. Let me answer all that for you versus just being yeah. in the
3: but you know the point is that lots of times we can we can sort of start up at that attraction again by just spending more time and energy on our relationship showing our partner they matter to us moving into a safer dance dancing more often um other times things have got really negative people have pulled down and pulled away emotionally and they need some help from a book or from an education program or from therapy to to sort of open that channel again so that they can be present with each other. And sometimes people have shut down the attraction for very good reasons. And, you know, it's, um, they've moved away from the relationship. So, But there's lots of promise. This new science of love that we have now, and, you know, I mean, it's the first time in human history that we can say that we understand romantic relationships and we know how to help people bring them alive again. There's all kinds of hope in that.
0: Mm. Well, Sue, I look forward to having you back on the show, some future episode to talk more about emotionally focused couples therapy and the science of love, and it's always so fascinating to have you here um, I'm and I'm I'm already seeing the title of this episode that where you and and John can be partners in the dance together, the dance of attraction.
3: That's great, and I'd love to. Okay, nice to talk to you, Neil.
0: And thank you again for being here with me today to celebrate the 100th episode of Relationship Alive. If you found this show to be inspiring, please help get the word out. Share it with your friends. And uh, you can always find me as well on Facebook in the Relationship Alive community. So please join us there and you can continue the conversation. I look forward to seeing you next week for the 101st episode of Relationship Alive. And until then, take care and enjoy the Dance of Attraction.